0: We are starting this week a three-part series on the end times, and um, and you'll see how we're going to break that down as we get into the study today. Um, over the next few weeks, we're going to be bringing up words that you've heard uh, through the Christian faith, uh, rapture, uh, second coming, Armageddon, uh, millennial reign, all these things that a lot of people have questions about, you know. It's important for us as believers, no matter where you stand on these issues, to know why you stand, where you stand according to God's word, because this is how he tells us. All right. And so uh, with that said, we're going to jump into our study. Uh, We're going to start in Mark 13. Yeah. Mark 13. Mark 13. We're gonna start reading at verse one. Somebody lose keys or phone? Okay. Mark 13. God bless. Love that. We're in a small church. We can do that. You just say somebody sneezed. We can just say. We can all stop and say God bless you. And it's good. Awesome. Can you imagine if we did that in a church of like 10,000? If everybody, if every time somebody sneezed, everybody just stopped and just everyone said God bless you. There you go. Powerful. (laughs) Mark 13. Yeah, they would never sneeze again. (laughs) All right. Then as Jesus went out of the temple, one of his disciples said to him, Teacher, see what manner of stones and what buildings are here. Jesus answered and said to him, Do you see these great buildings? Not one stone shall be left upon another that shall not be thrown down. Now as he sat on the Mount of Olives opposite the temple, Peter, James, John, and Andrew asked him privately, Tell us, when will these things be? And what will be the sign when all these things will be fulfilled? And Jesus answering them began to say, Take heed that no one deceives you, For many will come in my name, saying, I am he, and and he will deceive many. But when you hear of wars and rumors of wars, do not be troubled, for such things must happen, but the end is not yet. For nation will rise against nation, and kingdom against kingdom, and there will be earthquakes in various places, and there will be famines and troubles. These are the beginnings of sorrows. Let's pray. And Father, even as we read these words, an end is in sight. Indeed, no one knows when, but I don't know that the when is the point. So today, as Jesus instructs the disciples, they're so impressed, and it's at that moment that he infuses truth into the situation. and Truth always has a way of opening up our eyes and changing things. We have your truth, that same truth in front of us today. Your word is so powerful, God. And we're asking you, please, to reveal yourself to your children. And we ask this in confidence, and we ask it in the authority of the one who loved us enough to die on a cross. It's that death that gives us the authority to come to you. In Jesus' name, amen. It flies without a cape. You can spend it without ever opening up your wallet. You can waste it without causing pollution. It can run out without a warning. And it seems as if there is never enough of it. Time. (laughs) Good guess. Time. Time is our subject today. Time is so important in everything we do. Whether you are doing something as simple as making a meal or baking a cake, whether you're an athlete running a race, a musician playing a song, or a comedian telling a joke, time is important in everything we would do. Some would say, as our title of the message in the series is, Timing is Indeed Everything. Ask the college student that is taking their timed test and all of a sudden the buzzer goes off or the teacher says, please put your pens down now. It forces you to consider, oh, I wish I would have had more time. I would have spent more time doing this, less time on this on the test, and now you begin to reevaluate because of time. Ask the aspiring Olympic athlete who has been training their whole lives but misses qualifying by a millisecond. Ask them how important timing is. Ask the person saying goodbye to their loved one for the last time how important timing is. Timing in your relationships, very important. At 29, and in a CPR class, I meet a girl that is 21. Now, timing was everything. If I would have met her at 25, she would have still been 10 years more mature than I was at that moment. Timing is everything. If I would have met her 27, I wouldn't have been ready for what God had placed before me. So timing is indeed everything. Some of you know this because of disappointments. Didn't get the house that we thought we were going to get. You didn't get the job, nor did you get the promotion. You didn't get into the school that you wanted to, and somebody will come up to you and say, it just wasn't God's timing. Or you lose somebody unexpectedly, and somebody says, Well, I guess it was God's timing. Listen, he is a timeless God. He created time and space. He has no beginning, no middle, and no end. And yet this God is not confined by time. He's not confined by his creation. He is actually in control over it, no matter how things look in our lives sometimes. There's nothing that has happened in the past, in your present, or nothing that is going to happen that will ever get by him. Because he is the creator of time. And in the Bible, we see his timing is so very important. You can talk to a man when we get to heaven named Noah. The timing was important. He received an assignment. He built an ark because a massive storm and a massive flood was coming before rain had ever fallen on the earth. He's on that ark for a long time, but the rain is 40 days and 40 nights. Timing is everything. Ask a man named Joseph who was sold into slavery by his brothers, falsely accused, thrown into prison during a time of famine. He emerges as second only to Pharaoh. Ask him about timing. Ask Moses who at 40 years old was a prince of Egypt, and after murdering an Egyptian, he sent into the wilderness for 40 years, and only at the ripe age of 80, in God's timing, when God's ready. Ask Sarah and Abraham, who had their first child together when Abraham was at the Viral age of 100 years old and Sarah at 90. Or the children of Israel who were in bondage for 400 years. Can you see the timing is important? That maybe Paul, who was Saul of Tarsus one day on the road to Damascus, was knocked off his high horse. And it's at that moment that God called him. Timing is important. Timing is everything. Ask Esther. One of the most interesting books in the Bible, because it's one of the few books in the Bible where God's name isn't mentioned. And yet the events of that book are crucial, crucial to our understanding that even when God's name isn't mentioned, he's still in control. How many of you have had those moments in your life where it says, you know what, it feels like God isn't anywhere to be found. And now you look back at that moment and you say, God was working. God was working. It was God's timing, and timing is everything. Listen, the Bible tells us that when it comes to Jesus, he came in the fullness of time. How perfect was it that Jesus came when he came? Think about this for a second. Because when Jesus came, all right, at one point, the Greeks had been in control. They had taken control under Alexander. And when the Greeks had taken control, what they did was they introduced a language, and they introduced a culture, and they wanted everybody to take part in that language and that culture. And so it was kind of like universal they were trying to make it. But then the Romans took over from the Greeks, still maintained a lot of the Greek culture, but here's what they did. Every area they conquered, it was called the Pax Romanus. what they did was they established a road to the territory that they had conquered, from Rome, all paving the way for the gospel to come, so that the language would be put in place, that they would come to understand the gospel in, so that the pathway, that they could physically make their way from Rome to this place, to this place, to this place, to this place, and it was in the fullness of time that Jesus came. Now, all history turns on the coming of Jesus, right? We have everything that happened before Christ, and then there's everything that's happened after Christ. History will culminate in the return of Jesus Christ, and this is the thing that the church agrees on. When we talk about end times, this is something that the church agrees on, and that is that Jesus is coming back. And if we end that here today, and we just end with that hope, we could walk out that door saying, he's coming back. He's coming back, because some of you have some Things going on in your lives right now where you're like, I wish it would be today. Guess what? The early church wanted that too. The early church wanted it. Oh, Lord, Jesus, come quickly. Read Revelation. Oh, come quickly, Lord. But the timing of this is very, very important. And about some of the specifics about Jesus coming back, quite honestly, the church has kind of been in debate over years. So over the next few weeks... What's going to happen is, as Jesus starts this discussion about the end time with his disciples, what we're going to do is we're going to talk about why we stand, where we stand, and if you disagree, that's fine. Just know why you do according to the word of God. This week it's going to be a little bit nonspecific. Uh, as Jesus is asked a question in general by the disciples, hey, when is all this going to happen? Next week, we're going to get into subjects like the rapture, the coming of the Antichrist, and the Great Tribulation, and the building of the temple, and Armageddon, and all these things. And then the week after that, we're going to talk about uh, the uh, Armageddon, the throne of judgment, and all these kind of things, things that the church needs to know today. It's important that we have an understanding of the end times and how these things unfold. Following the third session on 11-3, on November 3rd, what we're going to do is we're going to have a question-and-answer session on the end times. Um, So be thinking about questions that you might have between now and then. Please don't ask them until November. No, I'm kidding. Ask them anytime you want. All right? You guys all have access to me. My number's on the bulletins. All right? So if you've got a question about what we're studying, please ask me. But if there are questions that someone else could benefit from, Hey, during that Q&A, let's sit down on that day. We're going to try to shorten the message a little bit, which the pastor says all the time during those times, and he never really seems to get there. But we'll try. Wow. Okay. Um, But we're going to definitely try. First, we're going to see how the conversation begins. The conversation begins, we'll read the first few verses of Mark 13, again, starting at verse 1. Then as he went out of the temple, Jesus, one of his disciples said to him, teacher, See what manner of stones and what buildings are here. And Jesus answered and said to him, Do you see these great buildings? Not one stone shall be left upon another that shall not be thrown down. The disciples stop right there, are impressed. They're walking through this. Like, wow. Wow. Whoa, whoa. Look at that. Look at that build. Look at that temple. That temple, the, the architecture, every, everything about this is just a marvel. It's out, it's outstanding. And yet this temple was nothing compared to Solomon's temple, the first temple that was built. But yet the disciples are looking at this marvel and perhaps they're thinking, hey, you know what? When Jesus takes control, we're going to rule. All right, this is ours. Perhaps they're thinking, hey, you know what? After the Romans are taken down, by Jesus after he shows his full power as that everybody's going to see. And so they're really impressed by what they see and probably taking inventory saying, well, maybe John can sleep there and Peter can sleep there and Judas, well, he'll have to stay outside. Um, But they don't know that Judas is betraying them yet. And so here they are and thinking, wow, this is so impressive. Let me ask you something. What impresses you? What, What impresses you? When we look at this, we see the disciples go, wow, look at these tremendous buildings. This is amazing. Let me ask you, is Jesus impressed by what is impressing them? He doesn't seem to be. Is he impressed by what impresses us? I was thinking about this today. When Jesus walks into a building, be it a temple, be it a church, be it your house, what would impress him? Oh, shit. 60 inch TV, 120 inch TV. Wow, you have that. That's dope. Can you imagine Jesus doing that? Could you imagine him sitting at the uh, table with his disciples? Well, what kind of phone do you have? Do you have the iPhone 11? What kind of server? Do, do you have? Verizon? You don't have Verizon? And Jesus looking and talking to these guys about the things. Well, what kind of shoes? They? What, what kind of shoes is this person wearing? What kind of clothes is this person wearing? Are these the things that would impress Jesus? If you were around today and after church and you would say, okay, we're going to go to lunch. Where do you want to go, Jesus? We're just going to do McDonald's today. (coughs) No, God, I don't necessarily think that that would cut it. You know, I'd be more impressed if we could go to this place. What car are we going to drive in? Pastor John's got an old 2001 Mustang convertible. I want to drive in something newer. What are the things that would impress Jesus? See, we need to start seeing things through his eyes, because a lot of the time we're holding back his power, and that's one of the things that you'll see in this article, because we're not prioritizing the things that he prioritizes. We're impressed, and we're pursuing other things, and when we're impressed and pursuing those other things, what happens is, is that we miss the more important thing. So enter Jesus, who comes into their conversation, look at this building, look at this building, Jesus Christ, moment killer. He says, listen, they're all coming down. They're all coming down. Everything's going to burn. Not one stone is going to be left standing. Really? Wow. Something that impressive? Everything is going to be taken down? Everything is going to be replaced? But now think about this for a second. Think of the area that he's sitting with his disciples. It says he was, as he was having this conversation, he sat on Mount Olive, opposite the temple. Early on in his ministry, do you remember a moment where Jesus is tempted by Satan? Do you remember that moment where Satan takes him to the top of the temple and he says, hey, listen, all this can be yours. Take a look. You know, hey, step off and, you know, step off and God will surely catch you. He'll protect you. And uh, take a look and all these kingdoms can be yours. Jesus is able to easily say, I don't think so. Why? Because he knows their end. He knows their end. And the Bible tells us this, it's for the joy that was set before him that he endured the suffering of the cross. And it brings us to our first of three simple points that we're going to talk about today, and that is that your perspective will change your priorities. That's the first thing. Your perspective changes priorities. So it's not a big deal for Jesus to look at these things and say, oh no, that's not all that impressive, guys. The things that are impressing you are definitely not impressing me, because I know their end. And listen, if you knew their end, then they wouldn't impress you either. But think about this. You do. You do. As a kid, how impressive was it for me to drive with my family down A1A? Wow. Look at that house. Wow. Look at that one. That's amazing. As a child, I was like, I would love to just, man, I would just love to get in there for one night. Just to chill in one of those houses one night. Wow. that That's immense. It's massive. As an older man, familiar with the Word of God, I'd still kind of like to spend the night in one of them. But but honestly, listen, if you're only living for the things of the world, maybe that would be endgame for you. Oh, I've got to live in one of those. I've got to have one of those. The bigger, the better. And we've got to keep up with the Joneses. All right? That's what we have to do. We have to take a look at those things, and we're measuring our success and our failure by those by the things that we can attain on this earth, it's by the size of our house, it's by the newness of our car, it's by the kind of clothing and the kind of technology that we have. But when we begin to see things the way Jesus does, it's quite different. Anthony pointed to this passage in 1 Samuel 16 last week where Saul had been an epic failure as a king. Samuel is told, listen, go to the house of Jesse and anoint another king. And if you remember the story, What happens is, is that Samuel is looking at the brothers, he's looking at Jesse's sons, and he's saying, hey, you know what? This guy looks pretty impressive. Maybe he should be the next king, and God pulls him aside, coaching moment, teaching moment. He pulls him aside and he says, hey, listen, you're looking at the wrong thing. I want you to look at his heart. Look at the heart. That compels Samuel, and to me, one of my favorite passages in all of Scripture, it compels Samuel to look at all seven brothers, everything that's in front of him, and reject this one, this one, this one, this one, and only after he rejects the last one in sight does he ask, hey, is there another brother? That's when you have perspective. When you're not limited to the things that are in front of you. Alright? The thing that's in front of us, the most important thing that's in front of us that can give us perspective to endure any temptation that can Show us how to rightly use the resources that have been put before us that can show us which relationship is right is when we're looking at things from a heavenly perspective. Do you know how freeing this is? When you can look at things from a heavenly perspective. Knowing this is that though you can't see what's coming next, if you're faithful in the moment and your fears of God, that adversity will come and you'll still have faith. As a matter of fact, it's through that moment because you have perspective and your priorities are in the right place because you're setting your mind on the things of heaven, not on the things of earth. Your priorities have changed because your perspective has changed. What impressed Jesus? What impressed Jesus? You're saying, you know, I want that eternal perspective, Pastor John. I know that would free me from a lot of the things that are holding me captive right now. If I had that eternal perspective on what was coming, perhaps I could uh, live in the situation that I'm in right now and I would experience a new freedom. Perhaps with my finances I wouldn't feel like I had to do this or this or this to make an extra dollar. Perhaps if I had that real freedom, how can we have that? Well, we developed the eternal perspective that Jesus had. So what impressed Jesus? You ready for it? This is really cool. In Luke 17, he heals ten lepers. One of them comes back. That impressed him. Not the fact that the other nine didn't, but that the one did. And that the one that did come back to thank him was a Gentile. What else impressed Jesus? In Matthew 8, there's a Roman centurion that approaches him because his servant is sick. And Jesus says, okay, I'm going to go heal him. And the Roman centurion says to him, you don't even have to. If you just say the word, he's going to be healed. Jesus looked at him and, that's impressive. I haven't seen faith like that even among the Jews. That's pretty crazy. That impressed Jesus. Canaanite woman in Matthew 15, whose child was sick. And Jesus says something seemingly rude to her. He says, well, listen, you know, I came for the Jews. You know, I, I'm not going to give you the, uh, you know, I, that, that's why I came. And she's like, listen, even the crumbs off the, off of your table are better than what we have. So will you heal? And so that is something, again, that impressed Jesus and he marveled at. You know, want to know what impressed Jesus? One day as he's going into Jericho, there's a tax collector so desperate for him. He climbs a tree. That impressed him. Listen. A thief on a cross. Hey, today you're going to be with me in paradise. Do you see how the things that impressed them were so really, really at odds with the things that impress us? Think about it. What impressed him? Gratitude. Some of us are struggling in that area, maybe. Faithfulness. Another area we sometimes struggle. Commitment. Persistence. Desperation the heart of sacrifice, the heart of worship. This is what Jesus loves. And the more we are in tune with his word, the more we're spending time with him and we're immersing ourselves in him, the more we're going to see things through his eyes. The more time I've spent with that woman, the more I can tell you the things that are in front of us. It's the songs we're listening to. It's the TV we're watching. Uh, that The more I can see things, I'm like, I don't think she'd like that. I think she would like this. Definitely going to do that. Right? The more time we spend with Jesus, the more our perspective, thus our priorities, are going to change. A great example of this we find in Hebrews 11. And again, so we see Jesus through his life, but then we also see in the scripture that he left us, in Hebrews 11, it's called the Hall of Faith. And listen, in Hebrews 11, We're hardly going to do an exhaustive study of it, but I do want, I'm going to read the first few verses, then we're going to skip around a little bit. Hebrews 11 says, faith is the substance of things hoped for, the evidence of things not seen. For by it the elders obtained a good testimony. By faith we understand that the worlds were framed by the word of God. Isn't that cool? Have you ever looked at that before? By faith we understand that the worlds were framed by the word not the other way around, so that the things which are seen were not made of things which are visible. By faith, Abel offered to God a more excellent sacrifice than Cain. Everybody looks at that passage with Cain and Abel. Here it explains it. How did Abel know to offer this and Cain know to... Well, it says by faith. That was the explanation. He knew the person of God, and because he knew the person of God, well, by faith, he gives a more excellent offering. Verse 5 says, By faith Enoch was taken away so that he did not see death. That is going to come into play. Enoch not seeing death when we talk about the rapture. And was not found because God... He pleased pleased God. (sighs) But without faith it is impossible to please him. For he who comes to God must believe that he is... And that he is a rewarder of those who diligently seek him. Then it goes on to talk about Noah. Then talks about Abraham. And in verse ten, I want to actually verse nine, it says, By faith he dwelt in the land of promise, Abraham as in a foreign country, dwelling in tents with Isaac and Jacob, heirs with him of the same promise, for he waited city which has foundations, whose builder and maker is God. That changes your perspective, the city that you're living for, because since the fall of the garden, we've all been trying to create our own city, our own kingdom, our own Eden, our own heaven. We've looked in the wrong places. Talks about Sarah, but then listen to verse 13. All right, as it talks about Abraham and Sarah and Noah, and all of the forefathers had said, "These all died in faith, not having received the promise, but having seen them afar off, were assured of them, embraced them, and confessed they were strangers and pilgrims on this earth, strangers and pilgrims on earth, for those who say such things declare plainly that they seek a homeland, and truly, if they had called to mind that country from which they had come out, they would have had opportunity to return, but now they desire a That is heavenly country. Therefore God is not ashamed to be called their God, for he has prepared a city for them. Perspective. These men lived with it. These women lived with it. These men and women of faith, they lived with perspective. And because of that, it changed their priorities. And until our perspective is right, our priorities are not going to get changed and we're going to keep making the same mistakes because we're going to keep pursuing the same things that have hurt us again and again and again. And again, perspective. There's a story of a very wealthy father. And this wealthy father took his son on a trip to a country for the sole purpose of showing his son how it was to be poor. Oh, they spent a few days and nights on the farm of what would have been considered a very poor family. And after their return from the trip, the father asked his son how he liked the trip. Oh, it was great, Dad, the son replied. Did you see how poor people can be? The father asked. Oh, yes, said the son. So what did you learn from the trip, son, asked the father. The son answered. I saw that we have one dog and they had four. We have a pool that reaches in the middle of our garden and they have a creek that has no end. We have imported lanterns in our garden and they have the stars at night. Our patio reaches to the front yard and they have the whole horizon. We have a small piece of land to live on, and they have fields that go beyond our sight. We have servants who serve us, but they serve others. We buy our food, but they grow theirs. We have walls around our property to protect us. They have friends to protect them. The boy's father was speechless. Then his son added, It showed me just how poor we really are. (laughs) Listen, when we begin to have the heavenly perspective, our earthly perspective changes. I read something this week that had touched my heart uh, with our recent losses, um, and it read like this. When we were thinking about death, it said, Your life is like a midst. You can see it for a short time, but then it goes away. Perspective. In God's plan, every life is long enough, and every death is timely. And though you and I might wish for a longer life, God knows better. And this is important. Though you and I may wish a longer life for our loved ones, they don't. They don't. Ironically, the first to accept God's decision of death is the one who dies. While we're shaking our heads in disbelief, they are lifting hands in worship. While we are mourning at the grave, they are marveling at heaven. While we are questioning God, they are praising God. You see how... When your perspective is biblical and it's heavenly, it kind of changes our priority on earth. Once that changes, then we can take a look at the headlines and then we can navigate them. Because I've had questions lately on things that are pretty important to our society. Pastor John, what is the church's stance on global warming? here's the church's stance on global warming. Are there seatbelts on these churches? <laughs> Here's the church's stance on global warming. The world, according to Revelation, is going to get very warm. Okay? <laughs> the church's stance on global warming is that there's a burning coming. What does that mean now, though? that we should just completely trash the environment? No. We're supposed to be responsible. But listen, if you're going to ask me where I'm going to spend my time, where I'm going to spend my resources, it's going to be on the fact that if God calls us home and people aren't ready and they don't hear the gospel, what they're headed for is damnation. So pardon me if I don't spend a lot of time on the global warming subject, because there's a greater salvation subject that seems to be a bit more important. Because if somebody takes their last breath today and nobody's promised tomorrow, we're not promised tomorrow, then it seems to me pretty important that we get the gospel out there. So, here's a way we can check our priorities. Here's a little litmus test for perspective. Because so much of the things that we are consumed by, Jesus wasn't even concerned with. So here's the litmus test. Get consumed with Jesus and let him determine what you're concerned about on earth. Because only when you're consumed with him Will you see things through his eyes. So ask yourself this. All right, Am I supposed to be spending more time saving the trees? Or bringing the gospel? And it doesn't mean we should be irresponsible with our environment. That's a matter of stewardship. Be responsible of the things that God has blessed you with and that he's put before you. But by all means, please understand that what he's concerned about is the human heart. Because you are the only creatures, please hear this, that have been created for all of eternity. And the angels but On this planet, you've been created for eternity. And So they looked at the buildings, they were impressed. Jesus gave him the truth. Not one stone is going to be left upon the other. They're going to be thrown down. Verse 3. It says, Now as he sat on the Mount of Olives opposite the temple, Peter, James, and John, and Andrew asked him privately, Tell us when these things will be. And what will be the sign when all these things will be fulfilled? They ask a question, and you would too if you would have been with them. When's this going to go down? When's it going to end? When's judgment coming? Wouldn't you love to know the answer? Wouldn't that just make preparation a little bit easier for some of the decisions that you're making right now if you knew that he was coming back tomorrow? And so they asked this all-important question, tell us, when will these things be? What will the signs be? What can we start to look for? Jesus said to them, and he answered, take heed that no one deceives you, for many will come in my name saying, I am he, and will deceive many. But when you hear of wars and rumors of wars, do not be troubled, for such things must happen, but the end is not yet. For nation will rise against nation, and kingdom against kingdom, and there will be earthquakes in various places, and there will be famines and troubles. These are just the beginnings of sorrows. Stop right there. So if our first point today was a simple one, and it said that our perspective changes priority, What we're going to see with this point is that awareness compels availability. They want to know, when is it going to end? And I got a little confused on my notes, because what if he said, hey, you know what, October 21st, 2019, 4 p.m., the end is near. I'm coming back. That would give us effectively 28 hours. 22 minutes, if I got my math right. All right, it would give us a little while before he came back. What changes would you make? If he let you know exactly when he was coming back. October twenty first. Here's why I got confused in my notes. Because it was May 21st, 2011, that a man named Harold Camping had everybody convinced, and it was on billboards everywhere, that that Jesus was going to come back May 21st, 2019, and that after he took his church home, final judgment was going to come on October 21st, 2011. We're still here. Now, here's what happened with camping. All right? All the billboards were around. All these bold proclamations were made. May 21st, there were a few people that were actually sitting there saying, okay, I'm ready, God. (laughs) Nothing? Nothing. Well, the next day, or it was shortly thereafter, Camping said, okay, well, I made a little bit of a mistake in my math. Actually, the rapture part of it is coming October 21st, 2011. And so people were sitting there on October 21st, Come on. And they sat there waiting for God. All right. But the Bible tells us something very interesting. It says that nobody knows the day or the hour. We're going to see that at the end of this passage when we start looking at it. But people have been obsessed with the end of the world from the beginning of time. Why? Again, because you are creatures created in time and space. And the way that you understand things is that everything seems to have a beginning, it seems to have a middle, and it seems to have an end. And so if the world is going to end, aren't you compelled to say, well, when is it going to be? And every so often, a sometimes well-meaning, sometimes intentionally misleading pastor or theologian comes along and says, well, it's going to be this time. It's going to be this date. And this has happened from the early times. Even 365 A.D., French Bishop Hilary Portier predicted that it was going to be the end then. Hippolytus of Rome in 500 A.D. predicted that that would be the year, and he predicted 500 A.D. based off of the dimensions of Noah's Ark. That's how he came up with his number. In the 1500s, multiple people thought that Jesus was going to come back. Same with the 1970s. He would have done well to do so, perhaps. All right, the 1970s. Now then we wouldn't have disco, guys. All right, so everybody chill with that. All right, Listen. As we were getting ready in the 1990s, all right, so many people thought that the Y2K bug was going to trigger global economic chaos. Even the writers of Left Behind thought that. And so they thought that that was going to be the moment. December 31st, 1999. Uh, various Christians, and because of that, in the 90s, you had movies that came out like a movie called Armageddon and Deep Impact. Well, there's an asteroid coming towards the Earth. And everybody was fantasizing that if this was the end, what would you do? What would you do if this was the end? 2012 again. People were again compelled that this was going to be the moment that Jesus came back. He doesn't tell them when. He doesn't tell them when, but what does He tell them? These are some things you can look for natural disasters. Wars and rumors of wars, diseases, famine. Do we see these things today? Yeah. Okay, we see these things a little bit today, all right? We see natural disaster, war, rumors of war, diseases, famines. We see these things, and more important than to predict a date, We should have an awareness of the things that are happening so that we ourselves are available for the things that God calls us to. Listen, every great story in the Bible comes with this same pattern, and that is that God is doing something, and he calls somebody, and that somebody says, here am I, here I am. That's availability. Let me ask you something. How many of you have ever applied for a job and said, well, they have that little thing where you have to write down your availability for Sunday, Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday, Friday, Saturday. And what if you just wrote down Sunday unavailable, Monday unavailable, Sunday you are unavailable, BTW. Sunday unavailable, Monday unavailable, Tuesday unavailable, Wednesday unavailable. If you wrote that down and you were not available for what they needed you to do, then chances are you're probably not going to get a call. Now, as nurses, my wife especially is an ER nurse, when there's a storm out in the tropics, They're looking for things that are happening out in the tropics so that they can put their employees on alert. Listen, if this thing gets closer, we're going to be calling you in. You need to be aware and you need to be available because the awareness is meant to compel our availability towards the things of God. Listen, we're living in a culture that is scared to death. Are we not? Because of things that are happening outside, so that you're in a mall last week in Boca you hear a balloon pop, people think it's a gunshot and they go crazy why? because the enemy loves this he loves going boo and seeing how the church goes ah! right? that's the culture we're living in where the enemy goes boo and he wants us to go "Ah, ah." he wants us to walk around scared to death in fear listen, for the Christian you shouldn't be in fear here's why You've been told this stuff is coming down the pipe. Here's how it's going to play out. There's going to be war. There's going to be rumor of war. There's going to be natural disaster. But you do not have to be afraid. You just have to be aware and you have to be available to say, God, here I am for the thing that you're calling me for. And is it possible that right now some of us are struggling because we're not as aware as he and as available as he needs us to be because we're so consumed by the other things? Sometimes I'm so consumed by the things of this world that I'm not available to tell that person about Jesus or to sit down with a Bible open and to make a disciple because I'm so consumed with the things of this world. Oh, I say that I want it. I say that I want it. I say, God, I want you to use me at all costs no matter what it takes, but I want you to do this. Really? I don't know about that, God. There's a story of a man. He wasn't happy with his job. He wasn't happy with his family. He wasn't happy with his life. He got very fed up with God. He said, you know what, I'm going to go in my prayer closet. And when he went into his prayer closet, he sat down. He opened up his Bible said, okay, I want you to speak to me. I want you to use me. All right? I haven't loved my wife the way that I should. I haven't cared for my children the way that I should. I haven't conducted myself at work the way that I should. But I want to be used by you, God. I want to be used by you in every way. Help me to change. Use me in a mighty way, God. Use me for your kingdom. And as he prayed passionately and cried out to God, he gets a knock on his door. It's his wife. Honey, I need some help out here with something. His reply? I'm praying. Wife backs off. Now he gets more desperate, the distractions. God, I just want to be used by you. God, please, please. Use me, all right? Knock on the door 15 minutes later. Honey, I said, I'm praying. because goes, Joe from the church is on the line, and they need some help feeding the homeless. I'm busy. I'm praying, he says to her. 15 minutes now, now he's just really frustrated. Now he's crying out to God, calling out to God. Oh, God, use me. Use me, Lord, please. I'm your man. I'm here, God. Now his son knocks at the door. Dad needs some help with homework. Son just walks away. Now he goes prostrate on the floor. Gets a text from work. I know you're off today, but we could really use some help. He texts. And he does one of these texts. that You've done maybe this before. All capital letters. I'm off today. Busy. Exclamation mark. Done. You get the point, I think. Listen, how many of you here want to be used by God? You want to be used in a mighty way. Be used where you are. Because every time you see something going south in this world, it should, one, bring you to your knees, absolutely, to pray for this world, but also to understand that you have a ministry. And some of that ministry is right next to you right now. Your ministry can be in the workplace. Pastor John, you don't know my job. No, I don't. But if it's as bad as you say, they need Jesus. So be Jesus for the people there. Be available where you're at. He may or may not give you a bigger assignment. Be faithful where you're at. Because when we see things... Listen, I miss so many opportunities. Can I tell you? In nursing school, here's what I was doing. I was writing sermons. I missed opportunities with people right around me. I don't know much about nursing really right now. I know I got my nursing license. All right? (laughs) Because I'm... I'm serious. Don't let me nurse you. She's a great nurse, though. We do have nurses here that are capable, not me. Um, when I was working in hospice, and I didn't realize this till after I had my own hospice experience in-house with my own mother, I missed a lot of ministry opportunities that were right there. Don't miss the opportunities. Staying available for the thing that God wants to do in you, through you. We're not going to get to some of these scriptures today, but we will over the next few weeks. That's why we're going to stretch this out over three weeks. Um, But the awareness should compel availability. The last point that we're going to make today, and again, we're going to get into the specifics and the timelines and the layouts. We're going to start that next week. But the last thing I want to say this week is that as he's talking about the wars and the rumors of wars and the things that we can look for, there's one last thing he says, and there will be an earthquake in various places. And there will be famines, troubles. These are the beginnings of sorrows. And some translations rightly say it's the beginning of birth pains. Now, again, why that? Why that illustration? Because anybody that's ever given birth knows it's painful, first of all. But birth pains, what happens when they intensify? They increase in intensity, frequency, and duration, right? These three things you can see. So when we're talking about the wars, the rumors of wars and the pestilence and the famine and all these kind of things, they're going to increase like birth pangs, all right? Intensity, it means it's going to be more, uh, it, it, you're going to be able to feel it more, all right? It's going to be more painful. In frequency, it's going to be more often. It's going to be more frequent. And then in duration, they're going to last longer. All right, so you're going to see a lot of these things as the end is coming near. You're going to see an unraveling. All right? More wars, more rumors of wars, more famine, more pestilence. And usually what happens is this, is what happens is like when there's an unraveling, usually when there's an unraveling, it produces an urgency. Would you agree? Only when things unravel. Sometimes I only get a call when somebody's in crisis. I don't want to just talk to you when somebody's in crisis. I want to have relationship with you. God is the same way. He wants to have a real relationship with you, not just when things go bad so that we pull out God and he's kind of like our lucky rabbit split. That's not the relationship that God wants. He wants the best of you. He doesn't want to wait till things unravel. How many of you have had something financially unravel and you're like, okay, now I'm in a real jam? Now I've got no gas, now I've got no, all right, and you're in a financial and only when things unravel, now it becomes urgent. All right? Now, if you get sick and if you've got a cold, well, then you can go to the store and get some cold medicine. But if you get really sick, if you get violently ill, what happens is, is that there's a physical deterioration, there's a physical unraveling, now you have to get to urgent care, now you have to get to an ER. Sometimes it's only when we see crisis that we're compelled to do something. My. Best example of that lately. Wednesday night, after church, some of you were here and got a front row seat. All right. What happens is one of our guys locks the keys in the church van. All right. I'm not going to mention who it was. It doesn't really matter. But the key was locked in the church van. Now we have. Uh, a team effort, which was cool because some folks helped get the kids home because we couldn't get the kids in the van. All right. So some kids, uh, some folks helped get the kids home. But what we also had was we had a group of about five or six or seven guys out there, some with coat hangers, trying to jam it through the window of the van, others sitting there trying to wedge this part of it open, us pushing them holding on to them so they can stay braced up against the van. We've got a chain of four people bracing one guy against the van, one guy videotaping, another guy standing on the other side of the van with a light, and every single person saying, why don't we have more keys than this? (laughs) Anthony comes up to me and he says, why do we always do this? Why does it always take a (laughs) crutch before we do something? Listen. In life, maybe you found the same thing. Usually only when there's an unraveling do we stop and say, okay, I need help now. Let's not do that. Let's not be that. As we see the unraveling of this world, I'm praying that it I'm praying that it compels us to say, listen, the things that are important to God is telling that person that might not know about Jesus, because if he takes us home tomorrow, and he could. If he takes us home tomorrow, and that person doesn't know, and they're a friend, or they're a family member, and they don't know Jesus, then they're going to experience the worst of the worst. Things that you couldn't even imagine. Things that you really wouldn't even wish on your worst enemy. As you see things unraveling, and they're unraveling out there. Politically, they're unraveling. Nationally, they're unraveling. Globally, they're unraveling. There are superbugs out there. There are wars, rumors of wars. Yes, it's, it's all there. Everything is there. Let it bring us to our knees, and when we get up off our knees, let us bring it to the Word so that we can bring the Word to the world because the world's already trying to take us away from the Word. Let the crisis compel us to be available and have an urgency. Listen, there're sometimes that there're things going on in your life this is an important situation. I need to do this. When was the last time you woke up and you said I need to tell someone about Jesus? I need to. Because there's something in here and that if I don't I'm just going to I'm going to be unsettled if I don't tell someone about Jesus Christ. D.L. Moody thought that was very important. It says here, D.L. Moody held his usual service the Sunday evening that the Chicago fire broke out. Now, it was a normal evening service. He had no idea that the fire was coming. It says at the close of the service, he did something a little different. He'd been used to giving altar calls every service. But this time, on the night of the Chicago fire, he asked his congregation to evaluate their relationship to Christ and return the following week to make a decision. This, he thought, would give them time to really think things over and result in a lasting decision. He wanted to make sure that they were sure about accepting Jesus, not wanting to pressure them into making a decision that they wouldn't stick with. Sounds reasonable. Ira Sankey was singing the closing hymn, It was drowned out by the sound of fire trucks and church bells, To his dying day, Moody regretted delaying their decision to the following Sunday, because you see, it was that very night that was the Great Fire of Chicago. It began at about 9 p.m. Sunday, October 8th, and it lasted until Tuesday, October 10th. This rapidly spreading fire killed approximately 300 individuals, destroyed roughly 3.3 square miles of Chicago, and left over 100,000 residents homeless. It's believed that the Great Chicago Fire spread so quickly because wood was the main building material used in Chicago. This included the building frames, walls, shingles, and even the sidewalks. To make matters worse, roofs that weren't topped with wooden shingles were made of flammable tar. Once the fire started, there were only 185 firefighters with 17 horse-drawn steam engines available to protect the entire city. The firemen themselves were already worn out from fighting fires earlier all week. Moody's church was destroyed. His family's home and the homes of many of his congregation. Moody himself said that he was able to save nothing but his reputation and his Bible. But what devastated him the most was that he regretted delaying their decision for the following Sunday because it would be a Sunday that not many of them would live to see. Moody said after that, was quoted as saying, I have never since dared to give an audience a week to think of their salvation. If they were lost, they might rise up in judgment against me. I have never seen that congregation since. I will never meet those people until I meet them in another world. But I want to tell you one lesson that I learned that night, which I have never forgotten. And that is when I preach to press Christ upon the people then and there and try to bring them to a decision on the spot. I would rather have that right hand cut off than to give an audience a week now to decide what to do with Jesus. We talked about all the predictions that were made at the, uh, in the 1990s. Well, at that point, December 31st, 1999, your pastor was walking closer with Jack Daniels than he was with Jesus Christ. I stood atop a building in New York with a bottle of Jack Daniels in my hand. Now, I was raised in a Christian household, and I bought into the hype. I actually believed Jesus could come back that night. And if he did, I thought I was probably going to heaven. I don't know what I was thinking. But I'm sitting there with a bottle of Jack Daniels, and as as we have a clear view to the ball that's going to drop in Times Square as it had, I thought that there was really a good chance that when that ball dropped, That would be it. There would just be a mass disappearance. Something that I heard about his kids was going to be very possible that night. And I was ready. I was ready to go meet Jesus. Right? Can I tell you something? I am so glad he did not come that night. And I'm so glad that he hasn't come yet. But I hope he does come today. And I hope that he does. When he does, we're ready. Let's pray. Father in heaven, only when we know what we're living for will we find something worth dying for. And we ask you now, O God, that if there are things that we've been doing, choices that we have been making, that we know need to change, we recognize, Father, that every bad choice we made started with one step. But that every day we hear truth, we can begin to take a step back in the right direction. So right now, we're going to close our service today with a little bit of prayer. And if you're somebody in the service that knows that you need to change some of your priorities. I'm not going to ask you to come up to the front. I'm going to ask everybody in this congregation to just sit where you're at. With your eyes closed. And your heads bowed. And if you're somebody in here today, based off of what we've heard, that says, you know what? I've got some changes I need to make. then I would love to pray for you. So what I'd like you to do is just where you're at, just to raise your hand. And as you raise your hand, anybody that needs to change their priorities and that wants to start saying, you know what, I've been putting a lot of energy, a lot of effort, a lot of time in the wrong places, and I need to make some adjustments, now is the time, all right? So if you keep your hand raised, Father God, I just thank you again for the truth of your word. Jesus, you did not feel it important to tell them exactly when it was going to happen. But what if it happened now? What if it happened today? I think most of us could say, listen, there might be some things that we would do differently. Why not start now? We pray, Father, by the stirring of your word and by the power of your Holy Spirit um, for the changes that we need to make, Father, be it with coworkers, be it with friends, be it in a relationship, God, that you would at this time, Father, just give us that compelling to say, listen, this is it. This is the day of change and that we would turn around from whatever it is that we were doing and we would start going towards you. And Lord, that you would open our eyes to the many, 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 many opportunities that are in front of us to minister your word, both in word and in our actions. God, we need to change. A change is only possible when we know what to do, when your Spirit instructs us, and we take a look and we say it's impossible. Usually that's the thing that you're asking us to do. And that's the thing that we need your Spirit for still. So hear our prayer. Change our hearts. Strengthen us, Father, that we may leave this building today broken people, put back together by you, desperate for less of us and more of you, that you would do a mighty work in and through us.